And I remember this footballer came up to me and grabbed me around the neck and was saying, Hello, and welcome to the Media Nord podcast. My name is Shalg, and I'm going to be the host moving forward. Uh, I'm a student here at Nord. I study film and TV. And today's guest is going to be the esteemed director-producer Richard Hearsay, who works as a teacher here at Nord. He's going to be talking to us about, you know, some of his work history, a little uh, bit of tips and tricks for getting started in the industry, and uh, some projects to keep an eye on. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Media Nord podcast. My name is Shalg, and I'll be your host for today. And with me, I've got Richard Hearsay. Hello, Richard. Hi. How are you doing? I'm okay. Yeah, I'm feeling fine. Yeah. Not freaked out by the isolated space we find ourselves in? Not confined? No, I've been in worse than that. Yeah. <laughs> sure you have. So, uh, Richard, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your career looking like? What do you work at? <laughs> What's my career looking like? Yeah. What do you mean? You want to know where I started? Well, yeah, let's take it back. Back in, I think it was 1975, I was doing a, in those days it was called a, a Bachelor in Photographic Arts uh, in London, at what is now the University of Westminster. Bachelor in Photographic Arts basically covered photography and film. And after the first semester, I suppose, you specialised in one or the other, and I specialised in film. And at that time, the BBC would take university students for not necessarily work experience, but to fill in for people who went on holiday. They called it holiday relief work. So in 75, I managed to get my first job at the BBC in London while still at university. So it was Easter holidays, summer vacation, Christmas holidays. And I must have done something right because they kept asking me to go back. And it was a fairly menial job, but I still think it was one of the best jobs I've ever done. It, it basically involved coming in every day, going to the BBC library and being given index cards. Bear in mind, there were no computers at that stage. And the index cards would have films. The BBC at that time, when they used to do television shows or TV dramas, would always do a telly recording. And the telly recording would be basically what it sounds like. It would be recorded on film. With, with a separate sound role to go with it. And you would go into the library, which looked like the end of Indiana Jones and the kingdom of whatever, <laughs> um, this huge warehouse, and you would climb up a ladder and you would pull out these film cans. And then you would go down to these little rooms and you'd get your coffee and you'd have your cigarettes and you'd sit there and watch these telerecordings. And you'd make notes on an index card, and that would be your job. So every day you were basically paid by the BBC to go and watch stuff. Um, and also while I was there, and I've, I've told people in the past, it's important to make connections. When I was, I was at a place called Television Film Studios in Ealing, and they were filming Doctor Who. So you would come out for a coffee break or a cigarette and there would be a Dalek would go past or a Cyberman would walk past. And I got to meet many of the Doctor Whos, um, who, the actors who played Doctor Who. And then years later, when I, when I eventually became a producer and director, 
I had those people on other shows I did, and I kept in touch with those people. A lot of them are sadly dead, but some of them are still alive now. Um, and I met other producers. I used to go over to Television Center as much as I could to see studio recordings. Um, I would hang out. All the TV companies in those days had their own bar. And everybody used to congregate in the bar, not just the talent, but the crews and everybody else. And it was a way of meeting people, and I would constantly be sort of sitting down with people. They, they probably got pissed off with me, but I would be asking them all sorts of questions about the cameras and, you know, how they got certain guests in and how the sets were developed. Um, and I sort of met a lot of people who I'm – who I'm still in touch with today. And that's how it, it sort of started. Obviously, I had to f finish my university uh, training because in those days, also to get into the BBC, it required a university degree anyway. It doesn't now. Um, and when I finished, I got offered a job at the BBC in, Brist in London I'd applied to go to Bristol because that's where my fam my parents were outside Bristol. And I got offered a job in London. Um, but I also got offered a job in Southampton at an independent company and decided I wanted to get out of London and move nearer to the sea, I suppose, and went and worked in Southampton as an assistant film editor. And then that turned into a film editor, um, again, working on a large range of stuff, all different genres from news and current affairs, children's, sport, documentaries, dramas. Um, and then one of the producer directors there gave me an opportunity to become a researcher, which I didn't really know what a researcher does. Um, but I was a researcher on a a very famous UK kids program, TV program, which when I joined it had probably been running for about 15 years. Um, I worked on that, and when I finished that, instead of going back to the film department, News and Current Affairs offered me a job as a production journalist. And that's when I started working on a regular daily news and magazine program and I was responsible for the music, guests, um, news, current affairs, anything really that happened. Um, and I worked on that, I can't remember how many years I worked on that, for a few years. And then I saw a job advertised back in London in an entertainment department at what was then classed as the best TV entertainment company. And I applied for the job, and there were 700 people applied, and there were only two jobs, and they offered me one of the jobs as a researcher. And within six months, they had made me an associate producer. I didn't ask. They, they just said, we're going to make you an associate producer, which was basically a way of giving me a bit more money and a bit more responsibility, but virtually the same job. And then the producer... And then the director I was working with sort of had nervous breakdowns because of the pressure of work. You know, we were working seven days a week, and the normal days could be 18-hour days or longer. 
Um, and I was living about 75 miles away from London, so I was coming in on the train every day. But when I finished late at night, you know, 11 o'clock, they, they provided you with a taxi home and you could sleep in the taxi. Anyway, this producer and director gave it up and I was made up to producer and director and that. And then I never really looked back after that. Um, and I just continued to produce, obviously, series producing and exec producing. And that went on um, for a long time. I, I ended up moving back to Southampton for a couple of years uh, as an exec producer and producer. Uh, and then went back to London when a new company opened and mainly did comedy entertainment at that point, um, along with Disney and stuff like that. Um, and then I was approached by an international company which represented TV formats worldwide. And the money was too good to turn around. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting, traveling the world, telling people how to make programs. Uh, so I did that. And that company ended up being Fremantle, um, who were based in America. And I got to, I suppose one of my dreams was to always work in Hollywood. And that, that opened up that avenue where I ended up working at Sony and CBS and uh, NBC and places like that, going backwards and forwards to America, um, doing pilots and doing shows over there, but also traveling the world and going to other places. And, you know, I can remember it was probably round about maybe 85 or maybe later I, I came to Norway to show them how to make a show we'd done in the UK. So I was in and out of Oslo. I never went anywhere else. I came to Oslo. <laughs> Um, and I was doing that until a point where a, a couple of guys from Switzerland approached me and said, would I like to run my own company? And I thought, well, if I don't do it now, I'll probably regret it later. So we set up my company in London, which was called Ronin Entertainment. And I then, I suppose for the next five years, was making programs and also running the company, small company. Um, but it was pretty successful, but I got fed up with the business side of it. I wanted to produce more. So then I decided, okay, I'm going to wrap this up and go back to freelancing. Um, and eventually the industry changed a lot back in 2008. Um, and I got a bit, depressed, not depressed, despondent with the industry and the way it was going. Uh, there seemed to be too many of these talent shows and stuff. You know, Simon Cowell is classed as being this fantastic producer and, you know, Britain's Got Talent and American Idol and stuff like that. Talent shows started in America in the 40s, so they're nothing new. They're just revamped. And But, of course... Younger people, you know, they see these programs and they go, oh, this is brilliant, but they don't know the history behind them. And I just got bored with it. I got bored with dancing programs and talent shows because I'd done those for years. Um, and I was approached to go and teach in the Philippines of all places, and I, I thought, this sounds like could be quite fun. could be like a holiday for six months. I'd never been to the Philippines. 
Um, so I went there for six months and ended up stuck there for six years teaching, which was great. Um, and that's where I met a, a friend of mine called Greg Curder. Um, and Greg was from America and a well-known sound ADR guy, really. Um, and he came over to Norway and then they were looking for somebody to come to Norway and he called me up and I did a sort of video interview and they hired me to come into Norway to teach. Um, but I, you know, I still keep my hand, people from the UK still approach me with ideas and, you know, I've been approached while I've been in Norway to go back and, you know, will you come back and do this quiz show? And I'm like, do I really want to go back and work seven days a week churning out five or six shows a day? And I, I don't really. I've sort of done that. I'm happy to go in and teach people how to do it, but I don't really want to be the person who physically does it. Um, but... You know, we've been lucky in Norway when John Cleese came over. Um, he did two shows in Trondheim, and I contacted him and said, could we come down and shoot the shows? So the students manned the cameras, and we recorded his show. Bill Bailey, another comic who I'd worked with 30 years before, he came over. He was in Trondheim. We did his show. Um, so... You know, there are opportunities occasionally for me to get back in there and, and work with people. Um, and funnily enough, we we did the, the And Action Festival last year. There was a guy called Tony McHale, who I first worked with in 83 when he was an actor on a hidden camera show. And then since that time, he ended up being a creator of a long-running BBC drama in the UK, wrote for something called EastEnders. He's written books. And I had an idea. I'd read something about an idea that involved France Nor and Norway, actually. And I talked to him while he was here about it. And since then, we've developed that as an eight-part drama series um, set in Norway, Sweden, and um, the UK. And at the moment, it's out. Uh, a couple of broadcasters and a couple of Peter producer friends of mine, one of them in Sweden, um, actually two of them in Sweden. One of them was the woman that was involved with the bridge, the Swedish-Danish version of the bridge. Um, and also it's in the UK at the moment, and what we're trying to do is is get three countries involved with it. It's a crime procedural, basically. Um, you know, and I, I have been involved with drama in the past, but obviously I, I sort of was more into comedy entertainment and sketch shows and stuff like that, as, as well as game shows and big entertainment shows. But I think a lot of the Scandinavian dramas are really good, and a lot of the BBC ones try and emulate that. And some of them works, others don't. Um, and he's come up with a really good treatment about a 25 page treatment for this series so again we'll see what happens with that but that's i probably went on a bit too long but that that sort of there's a lot more i could tell you about you know how i moved on it sounds it sounds fairly fairly easy how it happened and looking back it probably was a bit easier than it is now yeah, no, that's entirely likely. 
But yeah, you mentioned uh, production there uh, a good bit. Uh, for people who don't know, give us the skinny on what goes into production. Depends. I suppose a lot depends on what genre you're looking at. Um, you know, if it's a TV entertainment show, you know, the first thing that will happen is you'll have a format or a proposal or a treatment or you'll have the basic idea. And then as a producer, I would then look at that and I would work out, okay, how am I going to make this? Am I going to make two shows a day? Am I going to try and make four shows a day? Because obviously the more shows you can make in a day, you're, you're bringing the cost down. If you're renting a studio for one day, it's quite costly, certainly in central London. So if you can make four shows a day, you're amortizing the cost. And then you would look at it and I would work back and I would go, how much pre-production do I think I need? And I would sort of maybe go, okay, I might need eight weeks pre-production on this. How much production? Okay, I'm going to make two shows a day, five days a week. That's 10. They want 20, so that's going to be two weeks of production. Post-production tends to happen at the same time. So as soon as you come out of a studio, you know, the tapes go into the edit and they start working on it. Um, but, in, you know, with any production, you've got pre-production, production, and then post-production. And then you've got delivery and you've got all the other bits that go with it. Um, but as a producer, you're, you're normally the first person hired and you're the last person to leave. You know, quite often I've had other directors I've worked with and they've gone off on another job as soon as we finish shooting. So they haven't been involved with the edit. And, they're, you know, a lot of them are quite happy with that. In films, it's different um, because the director will stay hopefully right till the end. Uh, and the producer is there still cleaning up and doing paperwork and sorting stuff out, checking the budget. Um, you know, the budget is a big part of a producer's job, you know, keeping an eye that you're not going to go over. But then, you know, I've been lucky that I've worked with a lot of really good production managers, and they're the ones that are more into maths than I am. And they're the ones that will you know, tell me you need to look at this line in the budget, you're going over on makeup or you're going over on wardrobe or whatever. And then I have to look at the figures and I go, you know, well, we're not going to use as much in that line of the budget, so we'll move the money across. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a difficult thing to say what I do in the real world on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, it can be, Everything from auditioning people, meeting actors, lots of lunches with people, you know, dealing with companies, trying to get deals on hotels, trying to get deals on, you know, sets. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of production designers and graphic designers, you know, I, I still know to this day. Um, and... If I was doing a pilot, they would be the first people I would contact because I would say, you know, there's this pilot, you know, I'd like you to be involved. There's not a lot of money, um, but would you like to do it? And then if we get the series, you'll get the gig. And that's, you know, luckily that's turned out positively. Same with post-production. I was lucky there was a, there's a company in London called The Farm, one of the best post-production houses, and they would always – you know, let me edit a pilot for nothing. 
on the basis of if we get a series, we'll get the work. Uh, and that always worked out, you know, well. Right on. Uh, moving on a little bit uh, to something uh, a little bit different. Do you have any insider tips for people looking to, you know, work in the industry in terms of production and directing? Tips for getting into production or directing is a difficult one. I, when I left university, uh, I had friends at university who had said, I want to be a director. Hardly anybody said, I want to be a producer. Um, when I left university, I didn't say, I want to be a director. I didn't know that much about producing either. Um, and I thought my career was going to be in editing. Um, I think if you, if somebody leaves university going, I'm going to be a director, um, there are exceptions to the rule. Christopher Nolan, not a university, but he went, his jobs in the real world before he started getting the big breaks with all the movies, he worked as a producer, stroke cameraman, stroke editor, stroke director, doing corporate videos. And that would be similar to this. You know, he would turn up in an office building with a couple of cameras and the sound gear and they'd sit around and wait for, I don't know, Richard Branson to turn up. And then they would do an interview and then Richard Branson would leave. And that's what he did. And that paid the bills. But what he did then was at weekends, he went out and started making his own movie. So every weekend he was out there shooting a bit more for his first movie. And when he'd finished that, he edited it. And then it went to a festival. And I think it went to Sundance. And at Sundance, somebody came up to him and said, have you got any other ideas? He said, well, I've got this script that I've been working on called Memento. And they said, okay, we'll fund it. And that was how he got into the business. Another friend of mine is a guy called Mark Forster, who a lot of people may not be familiar with, but he did. He was responsible for a film called Monster's Ball, which he did straight out. He went to UCLA, I think. And he came out and he did Monster's Ball with Halle Berry, which she got an Oscar for. And then he was hired or he was given a three-picture deal by Harvey Weinstein, of all people, at Miramax. Um, but he went on to do Quantum of Solace. He went on to do Finding Neverland with Johnny Depp. Um, so he's done a, a large number of films, but he, it was his film that went to Sundance again, which got him that deal. Kevin Smith. You know, most people know the story that he self-financed clerks with his credit cards. Again, it was Harvey Weinstein at Sundance who saw it eventually, gave him a picture deal, and that took him into that. So, you know, one way for directors is to go, it's much easier nowadays with cameras. You know, I was, I was looking at Filmic Pro on my iPhone, and I can do a split screen on it. So if I was interviewing somebody, I can have both both feeds recorded on an iPhone. Um, you know, and there have been, we've seen there are a lot, a lot of people out there and they go, you know, our feature film was made on an iPhone. 
Okay, yeah, it was made on an iPhone, but they still needed professional sound gear and they still needed a lot of equipment. Um, nowadays, if somebody wants to be a director, my advice is to go out there and start shooting stuff, you know, come up with a really good script. Um, if you, for the other people who want to get into the business, it, I, my advice is you get your foot in the door anywhere you can, even if you get a job as a runner. I, I've always employed on productions, I've always employed a lot of young people. You know, there's a, there's a friend of mine, well, she's a friend now. She was the daughter of a friend of mine who happened to be a high court judge um, who I worked with when I was a journalist, when he was a solicitor. Andy did my house conveyancing and stuff like that. And his stepdaughter was coming up to her summer break and he rang me up and he said could you is there any way you could give Lara a job for the summer because he knew I was filming all summer and I said yeah sure so I hired her as a runner and she was getting coffee and she was you know doing what a runner does anything uh she went on to have a career as a weather girl uh doing the weather forecast for channel five and now she works for BBC on a on a program called BBC Click, which I think we get in Norway, um, and she's a presenter on that. So she went that route. Um, other friends of mine came in as there was one guy I employed as a he basically had a Xerox certificate for photocopying of all things. He came in as a runner. Um, he's now a producer. Uh, two others are first ADs. They came in as runners. Um, and what happens is, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about when I was first at the BBC. I used to hang around people, not in a, not in a strange stalking way, but I would, you know, introduce myself to people and ask them about, you know, they're acting or ask them about, you know, the camera work or ask them about sound or ask them about set design. And luckily people were always, you know, they didn't, nobody I think ever turned around and went, no, we're not telling you. It wasn't a sort of protective thing. The same as I am, you know, if somebody says to me, okay, well, how, how would you go about doing that? I'll tell them. And I think that's the important part. If you, if you get your foot in the door, is not making yourself a nuisance, but it's observing and seeing what goes on. And, yeah, okay, you may have to get the macchiatos and the lattes, but if you can sit in on production meetings and see what goes on and see how script editors work and see how the script is developed and follow the process through, I think that helps a lot. You, you get a better understanding. The other thing is never saying no to anybody when they ask you to do something. And I think that was one of the things when I first joined uh, London Weekend Television as a researcher, and one of the reasons I think they, they bumped me up to associate producer over other people who'd been researchers there a lot longer than me, was I never said no. It was like if they came to me at six o'clock in the evening and said, we've got a problem. There was one time they had a problem. They wanted to... 
for a show we were doing called Surprise, Surprise, they wanted to put together the English 66 World Cup squad and get them all in the studio. And the show was about three days later. And my then boss came came into the office and, and other people were like, right, I'm going home now. I'm going to the pub. And he looked at me and said, we've got a problem. We need this. Are, are you, will you be happy to stay? Yeah, sure. And I ended up sleeping under the desk that night. Um, but it was at that time, most of it, there was no internet. So it was mostly on the phone, trying to track down these people, being told to fuck off by a footballer called Alan Ball. Um, there was a, another guy I met at that time who I stayed very much in touch with was a very famous footballer in the UK, probably people don't know now, called George Best. Um, he died a few years ago. Um, but I got him involved as well, uh, along with the majority of the football squad. And then I, I remember on the night, we took them to Highbury Football Ground to have a kick around live into the studio. And then we had to get them on a bus and get them back to the studio. And I remember as well, I'd had to pay George Best more than I was paying the others. And I'd said to George, whatever you do, don't tell anybody. Cause, um, and one of the goalkeepers, I can't remember his name, found out. And we were in the hospitality suite, which was on the top floor of London Weekend Television in the bar. And I remember this footballer came up to me and grabbed me around the neck and was saying, I've just heard that we're not all getting paid the same amount, which was a lesson for me that you have to pay people the same. I, I'm not talking about films, because on films there is a disparity on there, and we've read about you know, certain actors getting a lot more than other actors, things like that. But another, another thing happened with that where my, I was on a – an entertainment show and we were filming all through the summer for about three years and the camera assistants and the sound assistants, I'd made a point of telling the production manager, they, they must be on the same rates, same daily rates. And my first day on location, one of the sound assistants who was a really, by that time, a really good friend of mine, um, he sort of walked past me in the morning on the way to breakfast and sort of it was like a, hmm. and I was like, what? What's the matter? Nothing. Doesn't matter. I said, come on. What's the problem? He said, you told us we would be on the same rate as the assistant. I said, well, yeah, you are. No, we're not. I went, I'll check into it. So I went and found the production manager. And I said, did you? She said, yeah, I managed to save some money. I said, no, that's not the point. They've got to be on the same daily rate and change it. So she changed it and everything was fine. So it was an example with crews of, you know, people do talk as much as I've never done that when people say to me, although they did at LWT at one point, another researcher, I was working with three other researchers and they said, what grade are you on? Because in those days it was like researcher grade one, two, three, four. And then they called it substantive. And it basically meant there were five grades of pay. And when I joined, they offered me grade two. And I said, I can't afford to do that with the travel from Winchester to London and stuff. So they made me grade four. 
Whereas somebody else who came from the BBC, where they'd been earning a lot less money, and we were sat there, and I think in the pub one lunchtime, and they said, "Oh, by the way, what grade are you on?" And I didn't think about it. I said, "Oh, I'm on grade four. And this person's face sort of drained of blood. I said, "How did you get grade four?" And I thought, "Oh shit, I shouldn't have said anything." So it told me, you know, from then on, not to talk about things like that. All right. And then um, for the final question, uh, is there anything coming out in terms of like movies or TV shows that you're looking forward to at the moment? Uh, I'm a big Nicolas Cage fan. So his new movie, Remfield, which has got a really low Rotten Tomatoes score, I'm looking forward <laughs> to that. Um, you know, I watch an awful lot of, I say TV, but... It's not just TV dramas and series and things like that. It, you know, I watch a lot of movies as well, as and when they come out. Um, you know, I just, I watched a, a thing last night. It was a three-part series about, it was a true story, but it was a dramatized story about a ex-nightclub bouncer from Newcastle who spent four months in prison for, abusing a nine-year-old boy, which I think four months is nothing. He should have stayed in there. And when he came out, he threatened he was going to hurt his ex-girlfriend. Um, he ended up shooting her new boyfriend and killing him and, and wounding her and then shot a policeman. And it was a, it was a true story, but it was a dramatized story, three parts, quite horrific, but really well done. I mean, you know, I, I, I say it a lot of the time. I, I watch stuff and my baseline is, was I entertained by that? Did it entertain me in some way? So, you know, films, if we look at movies, movies I can watch over and over again and do are everything from Steve McQueen's Bullet Clint Eastwood in Dirty Harry, um, Home Alone. Um, you know, those films, Galaxy Quest, which a very famous playwright and writer in the UK, David Mamet, says is the most perfect film ever, which may sound strange. You know, Galaxy Quest is a comedy space film loosely based on Star Trek. But if you look at it and you analyze it, it is a really well thought out film. So those things are entertaining. John Wick, I find entertaining. Um, Mission Impossibles, I find some of them I find more entertaining than others. Another film from last year, probably uh, Top Gun Maverick, I think is a really solid film. It's my telltale sign is if I'm watching a movie and I start pausing it to look at my phone or pausing it to go and get a coffee or a glass of wine or something. If I can sit and watch that movie, you know, throughout, then for me, I've been entertained by it. The same with TV dramas. Um, I think people can learn a lot by very good TV serial dramas, which tend to be police procedurals. The Bridge. You know, The Bridge 
was five seasons, five series, outstanding TV production. Then they did, a, you know, the UK, did a UK version of it and they called it The Tunnel. And they made, you know, they took the first scripts and did it in the Channel Tunnel as the first one. Wasn't nearly as good. Um, still okay, but, you know, and then in the UK you've got things like Broadchurch, which are excellent, Shetland, Line of Duty, all these police procedurals, which the public don't seem to be able to get enough of. Um, if we were talking, you know, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I only like, you know, old movies that I'll watch over and over again. You know, if you, there are movies that I would say are probably the best movies that have ever been made, and that would include things like Citizen Kane, it would include The Godfather, um, as two examples, uh, Goodfellas probably, you know, Serpico with Al Pacino, actually majority of things with Al Pacino are pretty good, Robert De Niro. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate, again, because I was able to span what we call the pond, i.e. between the UK and America. You know, I was lucky and lucky when I was in America that I got to meet a lot of what I would call my heroes, like Whoopi Goldberg. We sat, she was doing Hollywood Squares in the next studio to me. And I got invited into their lunchroom to have lunch, and I sat next to Whoopi. And we chatted for probably over an hour about films and acting and stuff like that. Um, and I was lucky that I got to meet a lot of people, some of them are sadly dead now, but I got to meet a lot of those people who were my heroes as a kid. And the same happened in the UK with a lot of really top actors, performers, variety guys, people who were at the top of their profession. Um, when I started producing, I got to work with these people. And, you know, sometimes it was, it, I had to pinch myself sometimes. It was like, I used to watch this guy when I was with my mum at home, when I used to come home from school. Now I'm producing this person. Um, and in a lot of cases it, it didn't feel real, but you, you, and luckily, you know, I became friendly with all those people. Um, and I think that's, that's another thing. It's the way you treat people, um, to the point, you know, a number of, number of the Doctor Who actors, I was, a, I, when I was a kid, I was a big fan of Doctor I can remember the first first ever episode of Doctor Who. Um, I haven't watched it in later years, but a lot of the doctors came from, the obviously, the acting profession, but then I would use them in other shows and keep in touch with them that way. Um, it's, you know, it's been... One thing I would say is I, I wish that every time I sat down with somebody, I'd had a portable recorder. It would be so much easier to do it today. You know, you just put your phone down and record the conversation with them. Because so many of them have passed, 
And there's no record of interviews with them other than chat shows and stuff like that. Um, I did a radio show once and I used to invite these sort of guests to our live radio show. And we just used to talk for two hours. And luckily I kept all those um, because some of those people have passed as well. Uh, I suppose it's the older you get, you know, people are going to disappear, unfortunately. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's a wrap. That's it for everything. So um, thank you so much for coming in for the uh, interview. Thank you for having me. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing else you want to know? No, I'm good. It's always a pleasure to hear from uh, an experienced man, you know. I'll I'll just add one other bit. Yeah. Which you can either edit in or or you. Uh, It comes back to advice about getting into the business. Um, And you guys have heard me say this time and time again, but I'll say it here. You know, my advice is watch as much as possible, you know, the crap stuff as well as the good stuff. Um, Sometimes you might have to force yourself to, to stick with a TV program or a film. But I think it helps you tremendously because you, whether you know it or not, when you're watching something, you're analyzing it. You know, you, any, anybody can watch something and see that actor's not very good or, you know, yeah, it, it, it's subconscious. Whereas you can watch other things and go, wow, that person, you know, Tom Hardy. If we take Tom Hardy as an example. You know, if you watch him in the majority of stuff he does, he's absolutely excellent. Um, Robert De Niro is excellent in a lot of things. Any earlier films, not not so much the later comedies, uh, I don't think. Um, Clint Eastwood early films, Steve McQueen early films, uh, Denzel Washington. You know, a huge breadth of stuff from Denzel Washington. Um, Nicolas Cage, you know, not so much, but he is churning out a huge number of movies. A lot of people may go, yeah, the majority of them are crap, but you've really got to, you know, if you look at Mandy or you look at Pig, um, if you look at, what was that last one? My daughter's just watched it, The Unbearable what, da di da di da da You know, it's a comedy film with Pedro Pascal. But then, you know, Pedro, The Last of Us, for instance, absolutely brilliant, in my view, and worth a watch. The Mandalorian, I love. You know, they're entertaining, but they're really good. So I watch a wide breadth of both movies, TV series, entertainment shows. You know, on BBC Brit in Norway, I love watching Would I Lie to You, 8 Out of 10 Cats. You know, I still get enjoyment out of those. Um, So advice for anybody going into the industry, and I think continuing to do that, is to watch as much as possible. Another bit of advice, if you're applying to a company, any company, Um, and you want to get in, is doing your research. So it's going to their website and looking at every production they've ever done. And if you haven't seen any of them, find it, watch it, 
so that you can comment on it because people, when they're receiving, when I had my own company, I used to get probably a hundred letters a day and I would read them all. But some of them were like, I want a job, you know. Others were talking about stuff that I'd worked on and that would stand out and I'd go, oh, they've done their homework. Okay, we'll get, get them in for an interview. Um, so I think those sort of tips help. But going back to what I said earlier, you know, getting your foot in the door at any level, you're in the industry. doesn't matter. That's the important part. Right. Well, um, thank you so much again okay. uh, for coming in. We did thank you earlier. Yeah, but... That uh, was an extra bit. Yeah, well, that's, thank you for the extra bit. That's, that's the deleted <laughs> scenes on the DVD. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Media Nord Podcast. Join us again next time where we invite a special guest to discuss the diversity at Nord University and in the game development industry. We'd also love to hear from you, our listeners, so please reach out to us on social media at Media Nord with your thoughts and feedback.